This episode of Warp 5 contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Tucker Smallwood from Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host, Brandon Shea-Mutella, and joining me, as always, is my ever-beautiful, ever-sexy, pregnant co-host, Patrick Devlin. Ah! What did you do to the eyes? Oh, the eyes, the eyes. Okay, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good. We're going to have a fun discussion tonight. So this is our second last movie night for Warp 5. We're getting them all done before we get to episode 200. And we've got a very special guest to join us to discuss this wonderful masterpiece in horror cinema. Cameron Jones, how are you doing? Oh, hello. I'm doing good. Doing good. Excellent. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I've been following your Twitter account for a while. You are an absolutely wonderful Twitter follow because you're always posting positive things about movies, about Star Trek, about lots of different stuff. There's so much variety on your Twitter feed. Um, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Um, I, I Sometimes I think I kind of weird people out because I'm into you know Star Trek, horror movies, a lot of different stuff. But I have like I, mean, I just love film in general. So you know what I mean. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. First thing we're going to ask you here tonight is a little bit about your Star Trek history. When did you discover Star Trek? When did you discover Enterprise? And then where would you rank Enterprise in your rankings of favorite Star Trek films? And it's okay if it's not your favorite because it's not my favorite either. Um, let's see. I started watching Star Trek. This would probably be, um, 15 years ago, reruns of TNG on, uh, was it, uh, BBC? I think it was. Or no, okay. actually, it might have, this probably went before, uh, the BBC channel, um, showed Star Trek. It might have been like G4, one of those old networks that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, so I, I started watching just, I would catch random Next Generation episodes, and that's how I got into um, Star Trek. This was, about, this was right after high school, so this was like 2002. And um, then I discovered, um, after I'd watched TNG probably two two times all the way through, I, I definitely wanted more. So then I um, I was able to buy, I got then I got into D, uh, sorry, Voyager, and I um, watched all of Voyager. Love Voyager holds a very special place in my heart. Then mm-hmm. I got to uh, then I moved on to Deep Space Nine, so it was kind of out of order there. Um, original series, Enterprise. I I just could not all the films, of course. I I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough of Star Trek. So it's been it's been a big part of my life for about 15 years now. All of my adult life, I guess you'd say, because I think I was about 18 when I discovered Star Trek. And, um, uh, Enterprise, I, I think I must have watched Enterprise right after it went off the air because, um, yeah. And, um, I actually, um, this is, this Enterprise is possibly, possibly one of my least favorite Treks, but that's, you know, that's saying a lot because of how much I love Trek. So I, I I enjoy Enterprise. I, I really like Enterprise and I thought, I really think it's a shame that the show didn't get, 
you know, up to seven seasons. Cause I, I really think the show was, was improving and it had, you know, the characters had a lot of growth. So I would have loved to have seen more enterprise, but I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of enterprise. I'm a fan of, of all Star Trek. Cool. Right on. Would you have a favorite episode or favorite character? Mm, um, I really liked, gosh, I really need to rewatch enterprise. It's been a while, but I really liked their, uh, mirror, mirror episode, their mirror mm-hmm. universe episode. Um, which which had the really cool alternate beginning, right? Yeah, Animir Darkly. That 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 was I remember that being one of my favorites. And okay. um uh favorite character, I like Paul. I like Archer. So um I guess kind of a tie there. <laughs> I actually just watched Intermirror Darkly Parts 1 and 2 tonight in preparation for next week when we record because we're going to finish up our, our uh, retrospective. So I think it's they're, – they're good. They really hold up, and it's fun how they tied that into Star Trek Discovery. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, th- that was nice. Um, I enjoyed that. Well, Patrick, do you want to describe for the listeners what movie night is? So movie night um... – on the show, they ended up having movie night for the camaraderie of the crew. It was a trip's idea. And they talked about a bunch of different movies. So we went back and we watched these movies and we uh, co- uh, commentated on those movies. One of the reasons was uh, it breaks up talking about just Star Trek all the time. And it's something that happened in the Star Trek universe. They watched old, you know, um, old time, even old movies for us, actually, but for the most part. And... Uh, and we just we like to watch those movies and, and give a rundown of what we thought of those movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the episode Twilight was the when they talked about watching Rosemary's Baby here. So oh yeah, uh, and, and for those of you who are listening, that, that's the first mention of what movie we're going to be watching. Ah yes, tonight Rosemary's Baby with <laughs> yeah. my with my pregnant co-host here. So. <laughs> so interestingly, that was Roman. From what I read, that was Roman Pulaski's first American movie. Hmm. Yes, it is. So. And you could definitely see some of his influence from his early uh, European work that he did with the uh, dream sequences, I think. Uh, that kind of style that's in there and the camera work. D- definitely. the I think the dream sequences really, really stand out in the film. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Creepy is the word. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking awesome. Forward. Well, normally, Pat, I normally we ask the guest what their initial impressions are first, but I'm going to go with Patrick first this time because this is Patrick's first watch of this movie. So, Patrick, tell me your initial impressions of Rosemary's Baby. So, this movie, I didn't read too much about it beforehand. Like, I read the synopsis of what it was, you know, um, and basically, you know, I like the back of the DVD cover, basically, is what I read. Mm-hmm. And then I sat down to watch the movie. Now, as I turned it on... My wife walked in the room, and she had never seen it either, and she had heard a lot of good things about it, so we ended up watching it together. And I can honestly say for the first time in my life, we did not speak for two hours Mm. because we were that entranced in the movie itself. I mean, I didn't know what to expect walking in, and it it wasn't what I expected at all, but I mean that in a good way. Mm -hmm. Like This movie was really, really well done, and it was... It was creepy at all times. Like you didn't know who to trust. You didn't know who was, and you kind of had the uneasy. At least for me, I had the uneasy feeling as if I was, um, oh, what's her name, Rosemary, Rosemary. But <laughs> I, I blanked for a second there because I, I all I could think of was her real name, Mia Farrow. But mm-hmm. like, I I had like the feeling that I I think I would feel she was having through through these interactions with different people. You are totally with Rosemary throughout the the entire film. You're it, right there with her. Yeah, it's crazy. Like you you feel like you're her going through these things that whole time and everything was creepy. Everything was not like scary scary, but it was all uneasy. Cameron, what's your history with this film? Wow, um you know, interesting enough like as as you know, I'm a huge horror fan. Um Rosemary's Baby was actually, I think I can say, the first horror film I ever saw. Oh. Yeah, and I was, I, I know now that I was way too young to be watching it. <laughs> <laughs> All the best horror movies need to be watched way too young. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It, it must have been, because it wasn't cut or anything like that, so it must have been like on HBO or something. I was like young. I was like maybe like 13 or 14, maybe no, probably, yeah, 13. And, um, I remember, um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to remember why, why, why I started watching. I, I think because I saw it had like a, it had like a, you know, um, it was like an R rating or something. And I was like, Oh, you know, I'll watch this. I'm probably not supposed to be, but 
And um, no, but uh, and I sat there just completely, just <laughs> terrified, completely entranced in the film, and like I couldn't look away. And it, it was really, it made a huge impact on me. I, I thought about it for days afterwards. You know, at that, especially at that young age, it was, it was really, um, you know, it really made an impact on me. Is it a movie you've come back to frequently? Um, let's see. Um. Gosh, I mean, I've seen it probably, um, probably about 12 times over, you know, the last, um, you know, 20 plus years. So, I mean, it's one I, it's one I watch when I think, wow, it's been a while. You know what I mean? So I think I'm still too young to watch that movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. For myself, I've only seen this movie twice now. The first time I watched it was a, probably about two years ago, I'd say, uh, after I picked up the Criterion Blu-ray edition for it. And I'm really glad that this podcast has given me the opportunity to revisit um, because I actually enjoyed it much more this time than I did the first time. I liked it the first time. I didn't. It was There was nothing wrong with it. But I was really captivated with it this time. And I, I was really amazed with the, the cinematography, the sets, you know, the locations that they chose and the writing and, you know, knowing how the movie panned out, because I've seen it once before, it was nice to see some little things plotted out throughout the film and how well it was crafted that way. And I I don't know how much that is associated with the book because I've never read the novel by Ira Levin, but um, I, I really liked how it did translate to the screen. And I think that this is an absolute masterpiece in horror. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those ones where, I mean, I think just about every time I've watched it, I've I've caught something that I didn't catch before, you know, and that's always interesting. Mm-hmm. You know what I caught that I, I don't always pay attention to, but um, this one was glaring. Early on in the movie, I can't remember exactly when, and I, I wrote it down, but I lost that list. Um, there's a scene where Rosemary and her husband are coming into a hallway, and they're looking, the camera angle is almost as if the camera's on the floor looking mm-hmm. down at the door. And it kind of set the tone that everything here is going to be kind of off. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't use that camera angle again the rest of the, the movie that I can remember, but it just seemed odd. And I, I for some reason, I want to say it was right after the girl committed suicide. Okay. Yeah, like the, the film definitely takes like a, a darker turn at, the, at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's one of the amazing things about the, the, the movie is... They're telling you about this talisman, basically, right? This this lucky charm that's not lucky at all. And it has Tannis root in it and everything. And you don't even realize at that moment that they're now setting up the undoing of all of this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, the thing that is going to be what drives all of the suspense through this movie is being f- fed to you right now. And you don't even realize it. Yeah, it's an interesting little device that they have with this necklace and the smell that they keep associating with it which which plays a really nice twist at the end right when Mia Farrow's character Rosemary finally discovers that the doctor that she's been seeing the the gynecologist um pediatrician he's not on her side he's actually on the side of these devilists so um just a quick summary for those that haven't seen the film so um Rosemary and her husband guy they they rent an apartment of a recently deceased older lady and they start meeting their neighbors and they begin to suspect that uh, their neighbors are involved in like devil witchcraft work and um, Rosemary begins to suspect that her husband is actually involved um, and is doing things in order to like advance his career. He's putting hexes on people and stuff like this. And then uh, she's starting to get concerned for the safety of her baby because she's recently become pregnant. And, um, you know, spoilers at the end of the movie, we find out that the devil actually impregnated Rosemary and it's actually the son of Satan. And um, that was the whole goal of this group was to bring the, the coming of the Antichrist into the world. Something that always disturbed me about the film was how quickly Guy is convinced, you know, to to um, how quickly Guy is drawn into this. You know, I mean, yeah. literally, it's just what I, I think as I was rewatching it the other day, it's it's literally like the sometime between the first and second, you know, time that he he met the cast of it's, you know, he's basically he's all in. And that's just really creepy, you know, how 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 quickly he, you know, uh, agreed, agreed to join their group. Mm-hmm. Watching it this time, 
I think it was right after that first dinner because he said right away, I'm going back tomorrow. Yeah, I do too. And I think part of it was because he, um, I think he was kind of testing them too. And they, I don't believe he put the hex on, on the other actor. I think he they did. did to bring him in. He did because remember Mia Farrow's well, character he stole called the tie, the, the but tie. I think he gave the tie over and they did it. And that's what convinced him to join. Okay, yeah, it was it was kind of like he he was he was testing this out, right? Like if they can do this, then I'm gonna stay. If they can't do this, then whatever. You know what I mean? You know what? You're probably right because looking back now, the phone conversation that he had with the agent or whatever, telling him what happened, he seemed really he did seem really shocked when he found out that the guy like suddenly lost his vision. Right. So you're probably right in that. Yeah, that's how I took it, and uh, but then like. You don't really know it's him at all until the end. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know he's involved or how deep this is. And I still have questions as to whether Doctor Hill is involved or just thinks she's crazy. Oh, I, I, I was I, I think about that every time I watch the film. You know, because I mean, there's that there's a point where you know you you, you think Rosemary's you know she she's safe. She's actually going to get out of this. You know, she she goes to Doctor Hill for sanctuary for help, and then Doctor Hill, you know. Betray, but, sorry, betrays her, and I, I'm not sure if Hill is in on it or if he just thinks he, she's crazy. I, I lean towards he just thinks she's crazy, but you don't know for sure. I do too, but it's not really told. Yeah, I agree, and the reason why I agree, I was going to leave this part to later, but I guess this is a good time to bring it up, is that, you know, sometimes we have to look at these old movies, and, you know... We, with social media bringing certain things to light, like this is this is an example of gaslighting. And now, while I'm not the best person to discuss this, I do know what gaslighting is, where somebody says something's happening and everybody's like, no, 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 you're crazy, right? And so now it's tough because I interpret this as, okay, this is 60s culture, and in 60s culture, people tend to be dismissive of women, Right. In that, like, you know, oh, it's just a case of the nerves. Like that was a saying that there used to be like when people would have like a breakdown, they say it's just you got bad nerves or something like that. Right. And for a woman to be pregnant and thinking that, you know, these 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 cultists are trying to hurt her baby sounds pretty outrageous. And I mean, like if somebody were to come to the doctor with this, like that doctor would be very concerned. And I don't think that that doctor would necessarily call her other doctor. I think he might just like. Um, put her in the hospital right away. I don't think that Dr. Hill was involved. It was just a case of, I'm not going to take this woman's word for this. I'm going to get in touch with her husband because yeah, he's well, the man of the house. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I also think in his particular case, he may have called the other doctor only because of that doctor standing in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, he at the time, he was considered the greatest of greats. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there may have been some professional courtesy that if he was just some other doctor, he wouldn't have followed. Mm-hmm. But because of who he was in his field and what mm-hmm. he was considered, that he may reach out to him and say, look, I got one of your patients here and they're losing it. You know? Right. And I mean, like, that's the one thing, like I try and look at a movie like this and I don't know that I necessarily consider this a gaslighting position as well. I think people might interpret that through a modern lens, but it's like, let's pretend that this didn't have the satanic element and this person came and said all this stuff. Like you would think that they were nuts and you, I don't think anybody would believe them. If, if you suddenly started ranting to me, Patrick, that, you know, satanic people were trying to overrun your life i would not take you seriously i would think you were crazy especially if i was pointing at my doctor she hadn't talked to dr hill in how long and she calls him and right off the bat she says there's a plot there's a plot against me and my baby it sounds crazy yeah absolutely so i don't know about you guys okay so like we patrick and i have talked about this because even the last movie night that we did we did the exorcist right and you know so like we've got two really almost two sides of the same coin here movies back to back that we're discussing. But it's like, even in there, I'm like, I don't know that I believe in exorcism. I, I personally am Christian. I believe in God. Therefore I believe in the devil, but I don't know that like the story itself is interesting. Cause it's like, Hey, if, if God could have a baby through Mary and create Christ, then the devil could have a baby through somebody and create the antichrist. And that's what this story is telling. And so I think that's kind of fascinating but part of me, even in my faith, is like, I don't know that that could actually really happen, 
right? So uh, even with my faith, I would still not believe a person if they were to tell me this, right? So even if you did believe it could happen, what are the odds of the person you're talking to it happening to? That's the other thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, people, people who are very religious are waiting for Jesus to return, right? But if I just randomly came up to you and said, oh, by the way, Michael's Jesus, you would be very hesitant to just believe that I'm right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, if, So it's interesting. Be, uh, yeah, so I don't know that I necessarily consider it a gaslighting situation because in the, in the story of the movie, yes, it happens to be true. But taken out of the context of the movie, if this were to happen, you would just think this person was nuts. Right. And then so, you factor in, you know, 1958 culture, right, mm-hmm. where they wouldn't believe her anyway. Um, I mean, even in that movie, like, when when her friends are telling her, just go get a second opinion, look at the reaction the husband has. Yeah. Now, and to we know us, why. that's insanity. But back then, that was more, it was still bad, but it wasn't to the degree we see it as. Mm-hmm. And we know why the husband is saying that, right? It's well, we do now, involved. but we didn't when he did it. Right. You know, there's so, something interesting that, uh, about Dr. Saperstein is I was like, you know, I was just thinking, how did, how did they, you know, how did they get this doctor in, into this coven, basically coven of witches? But then I, I realized that none of this would have, would have worked without a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. like they, they, they had to, they had to get a doctor in, you know, um, you know, to have whoever was going to have Satan's child had a, you know, a doctor to, to go to and to deliver the child. Um, so, you know, uh, I realized that the, the doctor, you know, it, it was, um, it was necessary, but you know, something I wondered is I wonder if, you know, Saperstein's reputation was something he got in exchange for his, you know, uh, cooperation and, um, and involvement. Cause you know, they, they say, you know, he, he's the best, he's the best doctor in you know, the city and such. I think one does go with the other. Mm-hmm. I think he is who he is because it's the old, you know, I sold my soul to the devil so I could be the greatest in my profession. Yeah, that's something I, I, I notice and I, I often wonder about. Um, another thing, I, you know, so this Hutch character is a great character to me, too, because he's... Maurice Evans, yeah, great. He's a great character because he's trying to stop this the whole way through and, and people just keep throwing roadblocks in his way. And he miraculously... And this is when she starts to realize because he miraculously comes down with a coma. Yeah, it was the morning he was he was supposed to uh, meet her after yes. she got the phone call from him the night before. And this is when I started thinking maybe the husband's in on it mm-hmm. because how else would they know that he had he was going to meet with her? See, I I love Mia Farrow's character in this Rosemary because she's an intelligent woman, she's an intelligent character, and she's putting the pieces together on her own. Like with all of these people telling her she's crazy, she's crazy, she's crazy, she's still sticking to her guns and putting it through all the way to the end, even when she puts that spoon in the breast milk. Yeah. She, you know, they've given her this pump to pump the breast milk and she's like, "What are you going to do with it?" And that friend Mary Lou or whatever her name was, Mary June, uh she's like, "Oh, we're just going to throw it away." But then she goes to put the spoon in it to test it and sees her reaction to like, "No, no, no, don't do that." Oh, man, I love it. I think she's a wonderful, wonderful character. And that's an interesting thing about horror movies is that a lot of the main protagonists in horror movies are women. Right? You know, like look at Alien Right, we've got Ripley as your main character there. While she maybe was Green the... Queens, yeah. So I, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's like the trope of women are supposed to be the more vulnerable. So if we make them the heroes, that makes them even stronger. I don't know if that's what they're trying to say. Part of I think um, I think part of uh, you know this is um, is to the credit of Mia Farrow who who when she was good she was really good you know what i mean like she was she was, she could be a very great actress you know she had she had some not she she had some not so great performances but like i said when she was good she was really good and she was she was in top form on rosemary's baby she she really she really did an amazing job with that performance yeah well and they did a good job too cuz when when they um the scene where she shows up with her hair cut yeah it's not just her hair that changes they really paled, you know, they made her really pale, no color whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then when that pain finally stops, the n- very next scene, she has rosy cheeks again and her color's back in her skin. And, like, they mm-hmm. really did a phenomenal job of making her, and I'm sure back then they made her lose the weight to be that thin. 
Oh yeah, like the the transformation on screen is is really jarring. It's shocking. It is. You know, and that adds to the whole creepiness of it all. I think something else that kind of adds another layer of creepiness to to the film is uh, Rosemary's cravings for raw meat and the abdominal pain. You know that. Oh my gosh, that just it just adds a whole other level of just freakiness. So it does. Now here's what's weird though. Like, my grandfather liked his steaks that way. Really? Yeah, just touch the pan, touch the pan, just just cook it enough that you can kill any bacteria on it, you know? Because on a full steak, bacteria doesn't grow inside steak, only on the outer layer. And then eat it. He actually liked raw steak, but, I mean, that wasn't really healthy. And, um, but, so I, 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 it was weird at that time, like, watching the movie, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is a 1958 thing or if this is a something's wrong with the baby thing. Like, I wasn't really sure where they were going you know what i mean yeah it wasn't until she actually like cut the raw meat from the thing and ate it i actually until you brought it up i didn't associate the steak with it either because that's just a blue rare steak yeah but, and she, she there's a great shot where she, she's eating that uh, whatever it was that came out of that you know bird it was just it was a raw yeah. piece of meat and she sees herself in the reflection of the toaster and here she is gaunt white as a sheet you know she's got blood on her face from the meat it's it's a really shocking moment she sees herself and the use of the toaster was great oh yeah as to how she saw herself you know because it, it, it was all it was kind of um distorted and it really kind of yeah right and did it did it creep anyone else out the way it cre- creeped me out? The ticking clock in the bedroom? Uh, I don't think I noticed it. Every single bedroom scene. I'm amazed because I literally spent, I don't know, an hour trying to figure out what that clock meant. Like searching online and I couldn't find it. Because every single bedroom scene had had the, the clock. And they showed it a few times on the like the, the headboard. Uh. But you'd hear the tick. I'll have to check it out again. Every bedroom scene. And there's a lot of bedroom scenes, but I couldn't put a correlation to like that ticking and then something happening in the very Mm -hmm. next scene or something. You know, like I couldn't. It's probably at the very least, it's something that registers in the subconscious. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it's just a countdown to when Satan's coming, but. Yeah, possible. And it could just be a creepy noise to use in a bedroom. Like that's all, you know what I mean? Just to keep you off your toes. Um, Another thing, speaking about bedroom, you know. At the end of that movie, when you find out the baby is the baby of Satan, now you have to look back and go, well, how much of those dreams were real? Yeah. Well, they were they were all real, right? Well, I don't See, know. See, like, they were all real. Were they all real? They all actually happened. Yeah, because the first one... Okay, so let's talk about the dreams here. So I loved the dream sequences. I thought the dream sequences were amazing. So the first one... Um, you see this nun, but the nun has the voice of her neighbor, and there's some other guy in there who has the voice of the neighbor's husband. I, I, yeah. I, I think what we're seeing with the dream sequences is you're seeing you're seeing a, a blending of reality and dream imagery. Right, but what we're hearing is real, but she's mixing it in her mind. Right, so that's and I loved that. I I thought that was so creepy because. They broke a window or something, and they were bricking it over. And to me, that's also the image of them, like, bricking up a a church, like, closing it up. I think that's even more symbolism in the film, right? Right. For the Antichrist imagery. But uh, the next sequence is the rape sequence. And, like, she that wasn't really a dream sequence, because she was awake for that. Yeah, because she wasn't fully drugged like she was supposed to be. Yeah, like the neighbor says, as long as she ate all the mouse, because she called it mouse instead of moose, um, she won't remember anything and she's not conscious. But we know that she didn't eat all of the moose, right? right? She put it in her lap. How about all that um, that uh, uh, JFK, uh, Jackie Kennedy imagery? All of that was, was, was really kind of bonkers, but but really kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Is that like on the boat sequence? Yeah, movie? like, yeah, you, um, you you hear JFK's voice talking to her. There's a, there's a scene where you see uh, a JFK lookalike from the back steering the boat. And then once she's, once she's kind of like in the belly of the beast, you see that um, a woman who is, it looks to be uh, J- Jackie Onassis talking to her, telling her she should have her, her legs tied down and such. So the, so the dream sequence is, is full of all this um, JFK Kennedy imagery. Oh. I don't know if that's just because at the time, this is 1968, this is just a couple years after the assassination. No, this movie was before the assassination. 
1968. So that's... Oh, was it? I thought it was 58 for some reason. No, 68. See, I didn't catch that because, like, I'm from Canada, and while I know who JFK is, I recognize his voice from, like, the moon, you know, we're going to go to the moon speech. Right. Right? I didn't catch that that was his voice in the movie, and that was supposed to be a JFK lookalike. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's something I, I definitely didn't catch it the first time, but yeah, you'll have to check that out next time. Going in, there's you, you, you definitely hear, you know, somebody sounds exactly like JFK talking. You see a JFK with, you know, he's got the he's got the trademark hat. And it, I mean, I think all of this also comes from, you know, JFK was famous for spending a lot of time on his boat. Okay. So I, I think that whole boat also goes in with the whole Kennedy thing. Oh, right. Which at 1968 would be in the minds of a lot of people um, in America anyway. And uh, it is interesting that a a Polish director would use that in his first film, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, I guess the screenwriter wasn't Polish, right? Because he he mm-hmm. didn't write the screenplay, right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, okay. So I think a better question isn't what's if the dream sequences are real. What parts of the dream sequence were real? You know what I mean? Like, for instance, when she's raped, she's raped by Satan, mm-hmm. but she sees Satan. Right. She doesn't see a nun or her husband or someone else in the role of Satan like she does in some of the other parts mm-hmm. where her her imagination is substituting a different person with that voice. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and I don't know if the husband even knew at that point with that dream sequence, if he knew that was the plan. Because remember, when he brings her to bed, she talks about trying to have a baby. It's baby night. And he tells her, well, there's always tomorrow. And then when he she wakes up, it's reversed. No, yeah, he, he definitely knows, and he's definitely a part of it at that time because he's trying to convince her there's no chalky aftertaste, and he's trying to convince her to eat it. He, he's basically oh, I, trying I, to I, force I, that moose down her throat, you know what I mean? I don't, no, I, I agree That's with that. why he's planned out when when the date of everything is. He's like, he knows, he's all in. He's planned out her period. I don't know my wife's period schedule. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I, I do. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I mean. I mean, I know he knows that she's being poisoned. I don't know. I guess I didn't know if he knew why. Because why? if you knew that that was the case, right, why wouldn't you just tell her you were going to try then? Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's trying to. He was. Yeah, it is. It is. I know exactly what you're saying. It's weird because she's like, no, this is baby night. And he says, no, there's always tomorrow. Right. Why even give her the... The inkling to say there's tomorrow. I always thought that was weird, too, because in the next morning, he's like, well, no, it was baby night, so that had to happen. It is kind of odd. It's odd because she woke up and she remembers, right? He saw her wake up when she was having sex with Satan there, right? And... So he's doing it as a cover. He didn't actually have sex with her that night, but she remembers having sex with something last night. So with her telling, with him telling her, while you were asleep, I went ahead and did it, she's creeped out. And that is creepy. Like, if she's exhausted and tired and he went ahead and had his way with her, like, that's a creepy thing to do. That's not okay. I, I, I see what you say. That they, they, I mean, they, they wouldn't have been able to mark the, the pregnancy down to the day. So if she hadn't have had that, if she hadn't have been conscious and remembered, they would have just probably slept together the next night, and that would have been when they conceived yeah. the baby. I guess it's because Satan leaves the marks on her, and that's when she really realizes it was all real. Right. And if if he had just said, well, instead of like arguing with her, like, oh, I know, but I, I don't want to miss a chance. Like, instead of... I, you said you wanted to. I'm sorry. Like, instead of arguing with her the night before, wouldn't I don't know. It's just that that whole him arguing with her and then him like being like, no, it was baby night. Just seems weird. It, it, right. it was kind of weird, yeah. But it's also to throw the audience off to say this is weird, right? Yeah, true. I mean, I guess it did what it's supposed to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of that, I have a question. Because this is something I've always wondered. Um, people going to the theater in 1968, seeing this movie, you know. N- they don't know anything about it. Are are we? Were they supposed to not know for sure for the majority of the movie if 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 these things were really happening or or you know like I've always wondered like are, uh, throughout most of the film are we supposed to be kind of wondering if you know she just is crazy if she's seeing things that aren't happening I've always kind of wondered that. I think I think the viewer was supposed to know something was up. 
but I don't think you were supposed to know all the players till the very end. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, because I mean, I, I mean, the things are so blatant that you're like, no, you know, this stuff is really happening. Yeah, like to me, it was so obvious that the woman who lived next door, Minnie. Uh huh. Was the head of all this, and it turns out I was dead wrong. It was her husband. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, because she finds out it was her, his father was a, a, a master witch or whatever. I don't know what you call them. She learns all this from the book she got from Hutch, which yes. Rosemary sees that picture of uh, Adrian Marcado, and Rosemary makes a jump that oh, you know, that must have been his father. But I think that that was actually him. He just has extraordinary long life because he's a witch. I think. Well, I don't know. I interpreted that he is the son, right? Because with the dates that she gave, with how old he is and when that kid was born in the book. Oh, right. right. Yeah, yeah. And she's like a 79. It works out perfectly. 74, I thought. But yeah. I got to ask, though, what's up with these bad guys in movies all the time using anagrams for their bad guy names? Oh, I know. (laughs) It is a big trope, huh? I uh, was it? uh, 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 Dracula, Alucard. Yeah, Alucard. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, they do it a lot, and uh, but it, it was it was freaky. And then he just throws the book away, which you now you later find out it's because he's trying to make sure she doesn't know, you know, right, right. She can't keep up. that. Was a great scene when she figured it out, though, because the name is an anagram. So she kept trying to figure out the name of the book, yeah, what it turned into, and it was coming up with like these ridiculous things. And even mm-hmm. at one point, she was like, you could tell she was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. I'm crazy. I'm losing it. This is not right. So now you start thinking, oh, man, she's crazy. She's been losing it this whole time. And then she realizes, no, it's the father's name messed up. Is this No, the name. son's name. It was the son's the son? name. Okay, but, yeah, yeah. but if you change. I think it's uh, if, if you take the letters from Adrian Marcato, it spells out. Um... No, it was from Stephen. It was Stephen. The, no, the, Stephen. Stephen was yeah. underlined in the book, which Stephen is the Stephen Marcato. Name. But if you, if you rearrange it, it's whatever. Roman. Roman. Roman, Roman Kisipet. Castavet. Yeah. Which is inter- which is weird. It's it's funny watching this because the guy that plays Guy is John Cassavetes. Uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> right. So Castavet is these neighbors and it's like it's kind of weird and then his name's Roman and the director's name is Roman and I don't know like it's kind of weird that this character has this name but uh um so is that like Chekhov's Scrabble board then, Patrick? Yeah, because that did pop up early in the movie, <laughs> right? And then it came into play huge later on. There's a lot of Chekhov's things in these movies. <laughs> so, awesome. interestingly enough, um, if you had an apartment that looked anything like those apartments, they'd be millions of dollars even in 1968. Yeah, uh, the uh, the Bramford, yeah, totally. Yeah, and the Bramford is actually the Dakota, which is made famous because Lennon was shot there. Was Lennon? Was it Lennon? Was Wait, shot, out, shot out in front of the uh, apartment building, I think, right? Yep, the Dakota. The same building that that movie is filmed at. But years later, I mean, he, he died in 1981. You know, this was filmed, obviously, in 67, 68, but... Did, did, did either of you, um, uh, did you notice that the uh, the previous tenant, I, I, I think it was Mrs. Gardenia, um, you know, she, when uh, they're being, sh- when the um, Rosemary and Guy are being shown the apartment, she sees that, she sees some notes, because the woman yeah. just died a couple of days ago, and I, I was managed to pause that and... One of the notes she had written says, I can no longer associate myself. And then you find, and then you see that she's moved that huge chest of drawers in front of the closet, which we now know was, was, was the way that the apartments were connected was through that closet. Oh, and I totally missed that in that moment that you're supposed to notice that, right? So thank, thankfully they bonk you over the head with it later on. But when she runs and gets in the apartment closet and he, she keeps him from getting in, Oh, and that scene is so great when by. those people just walk behind her. Yeah, oh, and my, my goodness. And my wife goes, how'd they get in? I go, I don't know, fire escape? It's what? so creepy. Yeah, it's so awesome. That uh, that Yeah, th- so that's what I was talking about when I'm like, things that are set up in the movie that pay off later on. Like, I just, I love that. That's great. So, so and that that would be the bad guy's Chekhov's cabinet. Chekhov's cabinet. Chekhov's, Chekhov's or, uh, secret passage, or or like find a Klingon name or a Romulan names passage, <laughs> but but that and that that was awfully weird when she when she decides to go at the very end of the movie and go to that passageway and you know she I guess she at that moment finally figured it out that that's how they're getting back and forth because she wants mm-hmm. to know where her baby is this whole time her baby's just gone they've taken it mm-hmm. from her and when she goes in that whole 
scene. Like, she gets the knife. She hides. She uses the knife. That was creepy to me to stop the bassinet from going back and forth. There's that classic shot of her. She uses the kitchen knife to stop the cradle from rocking. And the biggest kitchen knife she could have found. Oh, yeah. Like, like total Michael Myers kind of kitchen yeah. knife. Yeah. She goes into the other apartment. And at that point, like... One person turns around and kind of looks at her. Nothing happens. She walks a little bit farther, and someone screams. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. very... Uh, I don't even know the word. Like uh, From start to finish, I spent two hours and 16 minutes just feeling uneasy. That's good. Awesome. The movie did its job. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm not upset about that, <laughs> but like, the, I, I know I keep saying it, but that's how I felt. It was just uneasy from start mm-hmm. to finish. Like... This isn't the kind of horror movie where you're like, oh, no, a lot. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that kind of horror movie. It's not going to – things aren't going to jump out. It was almost, like, too real in a way. Like, you could, you know what I mean? Like, there was – it was like you just felt like – I don't know. Something about it just seemed like – Yeah, like you said in the beginning, it, you're with her the whole way. You mm-hmm. are her through this movie. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's not – like I said, it's not a – it's not a – it's not a shock factor movie. Typically. I mean, yeah. there's, there's like the scene at the end and stuff. And her facial expression when she sees the baby is unbelievable. Amazing. It's, I mean, she just really, she really captured yeah. that moment. And kudos to them not showing a really bad version of a devil baby. Mm-hmm. They left it to the imagination, which is the scariest thing of all. Yeah. yeah thankfully. Well, you know, again, I read something in uh, about Roman Pulaski afterwards that he had realized that the best kind of horror was the ones where you never actually get to the horror. Uh-huh. It's the anticipation moving up to that mm-hmm. moment that's actually the best part of the movie. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at Rosemary's Rosemary's reaction and her face tells you everything you need to know about what's you know what she's seeing. Yeah. Well, what's great too is, and I don't know if you caught this, but when she's screaming about his eyes, and they say it's the father, he has the father's eyes. Mm-hmm. He has his father's eyes. Her husband went into the other room and was hiding his face. Yeah. So you couldn't see his eyes. Like so now I'm like, well, what they do to his eyes? I want to see his eyes now. And then you, then they tell you, well, that's not the father. Yeah. Satan is his father, Rosemary. That scene is really disturbing to me. Like, you know, as a Christian, to see like a room full of people worshiping the devil and praising the devil. How many decades later, just to see them all, you know, hail Satan, God is dead. You know. Yeah. And the way Roman is preaching it. Mm-hmm. Especially when he's at the the bassinet, the black bassinet with the upside down cross and everything. Yeah, um, it, it it's really shocking it's, stuff. It's almost as if you you see him doing this and you're like, oh wow, I've seen videos of preachers like this. I mean, they weren't mm-hmm. spousing this, but oh yeah, you're you're talking about like when um at the end when when, when Roman is is he he's basically you know um he's he's celebrating and you know, all that. Yes. It's, it's almost like he's preaching, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, I've seen videos of, of preachers preach in this manner, you know, and they're, obviously they're not telling you to love Satan, but... This, oh, yeah, it was a, it was a, the cadence of his voice, and he was excited, yes. and he was he was filled with, you know, joy and what he was saying. Yeah, it was, it was just, and again, and it, the fact that he's talking about Satan makes it uneasy. Yeah. I can't say enough good about this movie, though. It was, you were in a state of suspense from start to finish. Yeah, those eyes. I I don't think I'll ever get that shot of Satan's eyes out of my head. Like I I don't know how they did it, but they're. I mean, that's just truly frightening. Right, which is perfect because now you know what the baby's eyes look like without seeing this awful makeup job on a baby or on a doll. You know, like you picture it in your head, and it's it's terrifying on a baby. It's terrifying. They explain it. They explain the hoofs. They explain the fur. You know what I mean? Like, so you you know what the baby looks like without having to see it. Yeah, it, it's very well done. The interesting thing about this movie here, so we've had this movie, and we ended up, we had a TV sequel for it. Like, just talking a little bit, a little bit about the history. Um, there was a TV sequel that was made in 76 called Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. Uh, they remade it in 2014 for a four-hour miniseries for NBC, and Zoe Saldana, who played Uhura in the Kelvin timeline. Oh, I remember that. You're right. And There's a link to Star Trek there. Yeah, i never yeah. seen it. Yeah, neither have I. Um, but then shortly before he died, Ira Levin actually wrote a sequel called Son of Rosemary. And, you know, like the Criterion Edition has got some really great bonus material on it and there's a really awesome audio interview uh, from a radio station with Ira Levin talking about the release of this this second book and 
you know, it talks about, uh, you know, it, it talks about him writing the book and in reference to the original movie and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know. I highly recommend the Criterion Edition. Uh, some other interesting things about the making of it here. So, when she started making the movie, Mia Farrow was married to, um, I just had it here, the singer Frank Sinatra. Right. And Frank Sinatra started to get jealous of the success that she was having making this movie. And, uh, he was, he actually asked her to stop production of the film. And she said no. And he made it down to like, you're either going to quit this movie or we're getting divorced. And she decided to stick with the movie. So they ended up divorced. So, but I, that was really fascinating to hear about uh, during the production of the film. But that goes back so, into your original point, way back in the beginning of all this, that, you know, in that timeline, timeline, in that time, her opinion didn't matter. Your career is not important. Mm-hmm. Mine is, and what I want is, and I don't want you doing movies like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not trying to say Frank Sinatra's a jerk, but that's how it was back then. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, also, John Cassavetes was a filmmaker of his own right. He was a director as well. And like, so him and Roman Polanski kind of butted heads quite a few times as well on, on some of the choices in the film. So interesting behind the scenes information on this film. Um, I love this movie. I think it's great. Uh, Cameron, did you have any final thoughts? Is there any topics on the film that we missed that you'd like to address here? That was something you'd like to bring up that we haven't talked about yet? Um, let me see. Um... Uh, how great was Ruth Gordon as Minnie? Thank you. Uh, she was outstanding. Like, she was perfectly annoying. Yo, thank you. Okay? <laughs> she was perfectly annoying. She did such a great job. Like, that accent that she had was great. Her attention to detail on the carpet when her husband spilled the wine, or the champagne, whatever. And then when when Rosemary dropped the knife, and she picked up the knife and, like, rubbed the the wood yeah yeah she's she's all worried about her floor plus all the questions about well how much was this what did you do with that i love what you did with this room that and not to mention when they came over to visit her her and her friend and they just started knitting oh i I know how 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 crazy was that totally bonkers What, (laughs) what an awesome character moment that it's like that's what these old ladies do. They sit down, they gossip, and they knit. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she was, she was absolutely fantastic. Of course, she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Rosemary's Baby. Oh, awesome! She Great, I didn't it. know that. Yes, she definitely deserved she sure it. Did. Yeah, you had so you had Rosemary's Baby coming out in '68, and then The Exorcist was, I think, four or five years later. So, and then there was uh, there was an avalanche of you know uh, Satan black magic films that came out in the wake, and I, I think this all kind of cultivated into the what they call the Satanic Panic of the 1970s, mm. which went on through the throughout the 90s. So it, it really, you know, there was like the movie had a profound effect on you know on on everything a lot of times they give credit to the exorcist for kind of boosting that uh-huh. but from what i read the exorcist doesn't get made without rosemary's baby yeah like, no like, i think that you're was right. its biggest influence you know and interestingly enough originally they were they were thinking about making the baby an alien but that had already been done, so they decided to stick with the devil. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right. I remember reading that because, and, and and at first, Polanski was he was like, oh, you know, the, the the devil. I don't want to do the devil. I'd rather do an alien. But no, then he went with the devil, and it, and you know, and I think it was it was it was perfect. I don't know if the movie holds the same historical significance if it goes with the alien. Now, the movie would still be great because you still have all that suspense and everything going up to it. But you'd have to change. Minnie wouldn't be the same. Roman wouldn't be the same. You know, like a lot of things would have to change. And I don't know if this movie holds up the way it does if they went with aliens instead of devils. And how how do you all think of the end? You know, when um, when I, as it um, the the one woman she's she's rocking the baby too fast, and you know Roman says, you know, no, c- come over here, you know, and um, tries to get Rosemary to rock the baby. Rosemary says, no, you're rocking him too fast. And she comes over. And, you know, um, Roman is trying to um, encourage her to rock the baby. Like a mother can. Yeah. She says, you know, you, uh, you're trying to get me to be his mother. And, you know, she says, and he says, you know, aren't you his mother? Right. Yeah. Well, just before that scene, he tells her, you don't have to join. Just uh-huh. be the mother he deserves. Right. Right. And in the end, she, I, I think she loves her baby despite, despite yep. it all. 
I, I see that ending scene as it's like that mother's instinct that she can't get rid of, you know, like that mother's protective instinct that, you know, most mothers have, I think. Did um, that shock, did, did it, did it shock either of you upon the first time viewing that ending with the way it ended? The fact that it ends on the scene of her rocking was very jarring for me. Mm-hmm. And I just watched it yesterday for the first time. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was perfect ending. It was great. Um, so I didn't get my final thoughts, but let me give them real quick. Yep. Okay, so one uh, thing we didn't mention, the uh, Tannis root doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but it in the when she's flipping through the book, they actually show a picture of it, and mm-hmm. it's actually Mandrake root. Okay. Which held exactly the same properties, you know, quote, unquote, for witches. That Tannis root does. I mean, so they just changed the name so that people didn't know it was Mandrake root. I was um, expecting them to say it was like Devil's Club or something like that, like just something with a devil's name in it. And when it's Tannis root, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, right. It would it would have made more sense, but uh, but Mandrake root does smell awful. Mandrake root does supposedly allow you to control. Oh, really? Back. So it, it it was it was based off that completely, right? Which and then the Mandrake root, most people don't know. From anywhere other than Harry Potter, which I don't think it does any of that in Harry Potter, but I'm not sure um, because it became famous in in uh, Harry Potter. But uh, yeah, so that 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 was one thing I wanted to mention because I found that interesting that they changed the name, but they really did use something that quote unquote witches would have used, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, I guess that I just can't. I really can't put this movie over enough. I mean. Really, if you're listening to this, still, you need to go watch this movie, even though we ruined it for you. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Go check it out. This film is a masterpiece. Uh, my final thoughts. I love this movie. I think it's great. Uh, I wanted to ask the both of you, between the two, which do you think is better, The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby? Cameron, I'll start with you. Um, I, as, as a horror fan, especially um, a, a, what I call a retro horror fan, I, I, I love them both, but... I think um, I think as far as which one is my personal favorite, and and it would have to be Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. Patrick, without question, it's Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we, we um, I have a tough time with. I think I think Exorcist is way too slow for the first like half of the movie uh, myself, and I don't I don't love it. I I enjoyed it more the second time I watched it for Warp Five here, but you know the first. I, I mentioned in that podcast, like the first three or four times I tried to watch the movie, I fell asleep every time. I thought it was the most boring movie I'd ever seen in my life. It's definitely it's definitely slower, and and, and like like we've said many times, it's you you're not you're not you're not as emotionally invested in The Exorcist as you are Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. No, and I think it, for me, it killed the movie. The slowness in the beginning took me out of being able to be emotionally invested in the characters. I just didn't care by the time stuff started happening. Yeah. And then when it did, you were kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. all right. Cameron, out of five uh, Gaslights, how would you rate this film? Oh, Rosemary's Baby definitely uh, gets five out of five for me. Patrick? Five out of five, easy. Yeah, me too, five out of five. This is This is really good. Excellent. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on. It's been a great conversation. Um, where can the listeners find you online? Why don't you tell them what your Twitter handle, Twitter handle, and then is there anywhere else they can find you? Twiddle handle. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. I, it's one of my favorite things in the world is is talking about horror or slash sci-fi with, with fellow fans, and I really appreciate you having me on. I, I've had a great time. Um, um, you could follow me on Twitter, and it's at Paramystery. That's at Para underscore Mystery. And you don't do anything else? Any writing or anything like that? Um, yeah, let's, um, I write for I write um, I write for a local publication uh, here in my small town, um, Scioto Post, and I, I I give presentations on I'm giving presentations on um, on 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 film. Um, I like to, I love to write movie reviews. Uh, I do all, do all kinds of stuff. Well, talking about the Antichrist is not all we've been discussing here on the network this week. So please take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the ready room. But Larry, how do you know that there's not a house somewhere out there on the forge where... Cybox in the living room, Michael's in the living room, and there are like six other people in the living room that Amanda and Sarek and Spock never talk about. They, t- 
Oh, sure, they took us in for a while and they threw us in the house on the forge. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Wait, so what switched between your two lists? Calypso comes in. Runaway comes in second of importance. Okay. But Calypso comes in second in enhancement of the season. Okay. I see. And really, even in importance, I could probably, in my head, flip Calypso and Runaway because I don't Mm -hmm. need Runaway. Standard Orbit. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, is the best named movie of the first six movies, I think. Because from a marketing point of view, from a Star Trek point of view, it's just a great title. You know, not talking about the execution of the film, I just mean it's a great title. The other movie titles were, eh, eh, you know, I mean, they weren't that creative. Literary Treks. So I, I think if you have an idea or a story for a Star Trek novel, it would you would be better served if that came on the heels of the ten pieces of fan fiction that you've written or whatever, or, or things that you've written on your own that, not necessarily fan fiction, but if you practiced as a writer and, and have honed your your craft, because they're going to want you to be a, a good writer. Yeah, they're going to, and, and that comes back to, you know, it's they're going to tie in editors, and this is not just Star Trek, this is anybody. They're going to go with people who have demonstrated an ability to hit their marks, get their marks clean, easy to work with, or at least able to work with. Um, and, and can do that on a, and can do that on a, you know, it's like, okay, I did it once. No. Okay. Well now do it again. Now do it again. Now do it three times in a row. Now do it five times in this one calendar year. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Patrick, here, I've got this nice white creamy drink for you. Will you drink it? What? It's good for you. Does it have tennis root in it? Yeah. No. Among other things. Among other things. It's a vitamin this other drink, stuff right? It. Better it's than any vitamin. pill. Yeah, it's better than any pill. It'll serve you good. Okay. How much did you pay for that chair behind you? This one? Yeah. So I don't remember. It's my wife's. Oh. Okay, well, you tell me later how much you paid for it, okay? I think it was like 80 80 bucks. I think oh. so. But she uses it for sewing, usually. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type L-B-A-B-E. That's an anagram for Babel. No. abel would be an anagram for Babel. L-E-A-B-B? No, A-A-B-L-E-B. abel Abelb. Abelb. Abel. <laughs> Sounds like an old man name from like the turn of the centuries. My name's Abelb. <laughs> Abelb O'Connor. Abelb O'Connor. I remember when kids played with sticks. <laughs> Type that into the search field uh, and on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Patrick, where can people find you when you're not trying to choose wonderful wallpaper for your new baby room? Uh, well, when I'm not doing that, they can find me painting a room, possibly. But uh, no, really, they can find me on uh, Twitter. My name is Magic Drop 5 there. It is one word. The five is a digit, not a number. Relying. Digit, not letters. Um, they can find me hanging around the Babel Conference as often as I can. And they can find me uh, over on the edge on this network with my good friend Amy Nelson. And soon they can find me on Magical Mutterings uh, with uh, Chris Shibuzio as my uh, my co-host, a uh, good friend. And um, that is on the uh, UFP network, the United Federation of uh, Podcast Network. Awesome. It's a great place. uh, What? It's a great place. Wonderful place. Love the place. So, uh, Brandon, 
Where can people find you when you're not uh, giving me little uh, lucky charms that uh, make me want to throw myself out a window? Uh, well, no, it's that it's not that they made her want to throw herself out the window. She, she, they told her what they wanted to do, and that's what made her jump out the window. Yeah, I mean, it also helped them control her for a long time. Mm, yeah, you know, but it's he did say I told you, you. should have told her. It's not controlling you very well. You're nah, just no. out of control. I'm uncontrollable. Uncontrollable. Your uncontrollable urges. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Mattella. You can find me here on the network with The Line, which is our new Star Trek Picard podcast. Uh, you can find me over on the United Federation of Podcast Network with my friend Zach Moore from Standard Orbit. There we have a show called Franchise Fatigue, where we talk about movies and their sequels and their remakes. And we go through all of them one at a time. That's a lot of fun. And Patrick was recently on for an episode of Toy Story. Was it Toy Story 2? Toy Story 2, yeah. Yeah, Toy Story 2 you joined us for. When the, the franchise wasn't fatigued yet. It didn't get fatigued until the fourth one. No, it did not, but it most certainly is now. Yeah, the third one was really good. I, the yes, third one's was. my favorite. Two. Two is my favorite. Three is my favorite. You're wrong. I'm you, No. <laughs> Who has the Disney podcast? Not you anymore. You're fired. <laughs> Who records them and leaves them on his computer? You. <laughs> Um, you can also find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom. We have a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast, and we cover all of Hitch's films one at a time, and that is a whole heck of a lot of fun. Um, by the time this is out, um, just in a couple of days, next Friday actually, uh, we're going to have our awesome discussion on Jamaica Inn, which was a really, really fun movie. It's I don't think it, it gets the, I don't think it earns the reputation it has. I thought it was a great movie, so uh, take a listen to that. It's a good one. Um, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's R-E-O-T-A-P-N. Trionpa. Dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And at this time, we'd like to thank the wonderful associate producers of Warp 5, Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, Chris Chibuzio, and Jim McMahon. Thank you so, for, so much for your support of the network as well as Warp 5 in particular. Patrick, we've only yes. got one more movie night. I, I'm I'm sad. Yeah, I know, because it's over. I like movie night. Movie night's been a lot of me, fun. You're not having me on Franchise Fatigue anytime soon. Um, Never again. Oh. No. Yeah, we'll have you on again. You broke my heart. I'm sorry. Uh, but next time we're going to go as well. So just for the listeners behind the scene, we've recorded these last bunch of episodes here out of order, like since... Uh, like massively out of order. Massively out of order, just because of scheduling and working with people. Um, so we've actually already recorded our next episode of Court Jester, but we haven't recorded the exit, which we're going to do right after this, because now we've watched Rosemary's Baby, and we're going to give you a ranking of all of them. So uh, so make sure you stay tuned all the way to the end of that episode, uh, Court Jester, so that you can hear our rankings on all the films. But that's all we got for you tonight. Until next time, when we talk, when we finish off our series on the season four retrospective, um, hopefully with our guest, I'm crossing my fingers, Kevin Dillmore. I've been working. Hopefully with, with him. me. Hopefully with you as well. Yes. <laughs> hopefully you don't lock your keys in the car, uh, or get a flat, or get a flat, or I'll break a leg at work. I mean, anything can happen. It's or it's a have wild your water world break. Have your water break. That give give birth to Satan. <laughs> That'd be a terrible thing to happen. That would be horrible. I think I'd get an, I'd get an excused absence for that <laughs> from work. <laughs> I think we should probably put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode too for like mature subject matter. What do you think? <laughs> we have to do that for her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Remember, you can't be afraid of the wind.
Recording. Recording, yeah, got it. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host, Brandon Shea Mutella, coming to you from the nether regions of the Klingon Empire with itchy feelings in my forehead. Wait, no, that was the last episode I did. Well, what am I doing? I'm, I'm going into my affliction and divergence episode that I just recorded an hour what ago. what we're doing here. <laughs> I'll start again. <laughs> I just recorded to... an episode with John Tenuto and like two hours and ago. And started it exactly that way. And yes, pretty just much. without me because my keys were locked in my car. 